0: Good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you, Roy, and thank you, Adrian and Sandra. kind of feel as if, uh, yet again, there's already been a preach, and we've already so much to just take away and reflect on without me really saying anything else. But anyway, if you have a Bible, uh, or there should be Bibles in the pews, if I could invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 5. We're actually going to trace the story of Genesis 5 through to 9, so we're going to cover five chapters this morning. Uh, in 25 minutes, so that's going to be a bit of a challenge. Uh, but before we do that, I'd actually like us to start with a prayer. And it's a prayer that we've taken and we've adapted and we've rewritten for this new series, Essential Word. It's really a prayer for 2011. And so I hope we'll use it together as a congregation from time to time throughout this year. And if you'd like a personal copy, of this prayer, if you just speak to me afterwards and I'll, I'll email you a copy of it. But we as a church have resolved, as has been said already, to read right through the story of the Bible uh, during this year, from Genesis to Revelation, here on Sundays as we meet together and during the week on our own via this book, Essential 100, which I know lots of you have got. And incidentally, we're meant to be up to, up to chapter 4 out of the 100. Uh, today just so you can keep pace of that. But this is, if you like, a prayer for that journey which picks up some of the thinking and some of the imagery that we've already started to introduce as we have talked about this new series. So what I'm going to invite you to do is stand and if you would uh, read or pray the parts in yellow and I'll do the parts in white. So please stand with me and let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for the year ahead, a gift to us full of promise. As we celebrate your word, we resolve to read the Bible together and alone, to see your word through fresh eyes, to experience the story in a new way. And to pray for those without access to your word in their heart language. Holy Spirit, teach us through your word, so that it may be a man to our feet, and a man to our path. The bread of life to feed us day by day, and the fire to cleanse our minds and burn within Use your word as a surgeon's scalpel, cutting deep into our innermost thoughts and desires. As your words become our words, may our lives reflect the living word more clearly, and may our love for the word made flesh become stronger. Amen. Please take a seat. As I say, if you'd like a copy of that just for your own personal use, then then please speak to me afterwards. Okay, so. So far we have uh, listened to the story of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And as the the curtain goes up on the Genesis uh, stage, there are now four spotlights that have come on uh, to pick out four really important subjects. The first spotlight falls on the maker, the, the creative genius, the author of this story. God. There... From the very beginning, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God, who is unimaginably different from everything else there is. Immensely powerful, good, holy. The second spotlight falls on what he makes. The created cosmos spoken into being. Let there be unforgettable, spectacular in its beauty, its diversity, its unity, its color, its texture, its life, its harmony. The third spotlight falls on us. Human beings, we discover, who have been made in the image of God. Unique, packed with potential, made for relationship with each other and with their maker, but made to work and to care for God's created masterpiece. But as the story continues in Genesis 3, a fourth spotlight comes on, and it highlights something altogether different. There's another presence on the Genesis stage, another presence in this drama, sin, And as a result of its intrusion into God's perfect world, the joyous dance of creation becomes a dirge as a shadow falls over all things. And sin's effect is widespread and it's devastating. In chapter 1, we read that God blessed. When we come into chapter 3, the word we discover is curse. Negative emotions are felt for the first time, but certainly not the last. Shame, fear, guilt, regret, all become the experience of the human. The relationship between the man and the woman changes dramatically and for the worse. The two things that they were given to do in chapters 1 and 2, to be fruitful and to work Eden, are now both occasions for misery. Giving birth will be painful, and work becomes toil and tragically fellowship or connection with God becomes alienation separation they used to walk with God in the garden now they're out of Eden they're without God in the world sin wreaks havoc it always has it always will and we describe sin in three ways it's an attempt to achieve autonomy where we define meaning Where we decide for ourselves what's right and what's wrong and what's good and what's bad and what's true and what's false. It's where we try to establish our own standards apart from or actually by blatantly ignoring God's word. Sin's also rebellion. It's where we decide to withdraw allegiance from a loving, good, holy, wise God. And we give our allegiance to what? Well, that's for you to decide. And sin is idolatry. It's where someone or something else takes God's rightful place in our lives. And as the story progresses and develops, and really all I'm doing this morning is just telling the story. But as it develops and progresses, we begin to see the continuing consequences, the devastating outworking of sin. Because in Genesis chapter 4, Cain kills Abel, brother kills brother. The family that God meant to be a source of companionship and joy has become a place of jealousy and rage and murder. And when you jump forward to Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, you actually discover the extent of sin's impact. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And just as an interesting and rather sobering aside in thought, God doesn't just see what we do externally. God doesn't just see our actions. He also sees our motives. He sees right into our hearts. God knows us better than we know ourselves. And before we look at God's response to this, because he does respond. But before we look at that, let's go back to chapter 5 for a moment. Which is more or less a genealogy a family tree, a list of ancestors. But let me draw your attention to two phrases. Scan your eyes down, Genesis chapter 5, because the first phrase comes at the end of verse 5, the end of verse 8, the end of verse 11, the end of verse 14, and so on. It actually appears eight times in this chapter, and here it is, four words, and then he died. And back in chapter 2, God had said to Adam, listen, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good or evil, you will surely die. Adam did eat. And here's proof that physical death became a reality. Adam and a whole list of others did die. But someone bucks the trend. Someone on that list doesn't die. Look at verse 24. Enoch walked with God, and then this phrase, And then he was no more. Because God took him away. No, and then he died at the end of verse 24. And last Sunday night, I said that even in these early stages of this story, in the early chapters of the book of beginnings, we find hints of hope and rumours of redemption. And here in Genesis chapter 5 is another example, because here we encounter already the power of God over death. It seems there is something more the death is not the end and that's an aspect of this story that's an aspect of god's story and our story that will become clear as this story unfolds but the second phrase i want to highlight is in verses 22 and 24 enoch walked with god and it's such a positive comment Because it seems that despite sins, unwelcomed intrusion into God's world, human beings could still relate to God. Human beings could still be connected to God at some level. Could engage with God. Could enjoy fellowship with God. Because here is someone who walked with God. It's another hint of hope, rumor of redemption. And Enoch appears in scripture in Hebrews 11, Hall of Fame, where it says this about him. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. So you might live in a sin-infested, decaying context. And we all do. But you can still choose to live as one who pleases God. Enoch walked with God, And as we're about to discover, Noah walked with God. And later on we discover Abraham walked with God. And actually, as this story develops, you discover this is a requirement of all of us. Every single one of us. Because what's the Lord require of you? To act justly. To love mercy. And to walk humbly with your God. Is that what we're doing? And then he died. And Enoch walked with God. Okay, back to Genesis 6-5. Because God has seen the effects of sin. He's all too aware of the mess. But his response is interesting. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on earth. And it grieved him to his heart. And here, if you like, and please don't miss this. Here is the picture of a suffering God. God's reaction to man's wickedness and evil is not anger. It's not this intent desire to punish. As God sees and observes what people make of themselves and what they do with his stunning creation, God feels and experiences pain and grief. And here we see God's vulnerability. Here is the pain of creative love. Here is the wounded spirit of the artist whose work is rejected. The broken heart of the lover whose love is not returned. Sin grieves God. It breaks his heart. But God the maker is holy. And because God is well, he can't just turn a blind eye to sin. He can't just walk away from it, pretend it doesn't matter. Do nothing about it. And therefore, and we struggle with this, but judgment's a reality. It's inevitable. It's a natural consequence of sin. It happened in Genesis 3, and it happened here on an epic scale in the flood. Bit of a topical phrase at the moment. But this flood is God's sovereign judgment on a world that's lost its moorings. And if that was all it was, then at one level that would be fine. That would be God's prerogative. If that was all this was. But in a sense, if that was all there was, then hope for us would lie gasping for breath at this early stage of the story. And so Genesis 6 verse 8 and how it begins is a godsend. It offers more than a further hint of hope and rumour of redemption because it says, but Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. You see, this isn't just the story of the flood. This is the story this morning of Noah and the flood. The story of the flood is the story of God's judgment, but the story of Noah is at the same time the story of God's intimate, compassionate, and faithful love. Please breathe that in. It's the story of God's intimate, compassionate, and faithful love. In this one event, this one action, there is both judgment and there's mercy. Noah finds favor or to put that slightly differently grace finds noah and so this righteous shining light amongst the people of his time who walked faithfully with god he's asked to do something he's asked to build a boat fill it with his immediate family two of all living creatures plus every kind of food necessary to feed all the occupants and after god finishes sharing this bizarre request And offer issues this command. We read this in verse 22. Noah did everything God commanded him. And it's a phrase again that appears in chapter 7, verse 5, and it's an example of faithful obedience in the light of a future explained, but a future yet unseen. Can I say that again? Because this is really important. This is an example of faithful obedience. In light of a future explained, but a future yet unseen. And back to Hebrews 11, only this time the entry regarding Noah. By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events yet unseen, took heed and constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And as I sort of reflected on that during the week, it struck me that God has spoken about future events yet unseen concerning judgment and without being too heavy or over dramatic the challenge to take god at his word and make the necessary preparations in order to be ready to face the reality of that future event is still staring every single one of us in the face and we could laugh it off or we could scoff at the prospect as i've no doubt many did in noah's context and i know many still do today but the example of noah And his faithful obedience of actually taking God at his word concerning events yet unseen stands as an example to us. We've got to take God seriously about events yet unseen. Noah did everything that God commanded him. And maybe as Walter Brueggemann comments, Noah regards God's commands as promises of life. That somehow by faith... Noah recognises and realises, you know something, the commands of God will actually lead me to life rather than death. And that's something that we as Christians affirm time and time again. And the reason we affirm this time and time again is because of something Jesus said in John's Gospel. I know his, speaking of the Father's commands, lead to eternal life. God's commands are not life-restricting, despite what lots of people think. God's commands are life-giving. They always have been and always will be. But how you perceive God's commands will determine your response to them. So Noah builds a boat and he occupies it as instructed. And then as predicted, the springs of the deep burst forth. And I'm just reading from scripture. And the floodgates of the heavens are opened and everything on dry land that has the breath of life in its nostrils dies. Total wipeout. Every living thing eradicated from the earth. Only Noah is left and those with him in the ark. And as he steps out of the boat eventually, what's the first thing he does on dry land? He worships. The boat builder now builds an altar. And in response to being delivered and saved, he expresses gratitude to God in an act of deep devotion. And considering our story, many of us here this morning sit as people who have been rescued and delivered and saved. Once again, Noah's example is worth taking seriously. To constantly, consistently engage in an act Of deep devotional worship. And Noah's worship according to the text is pleasing to God. And in this next bit I find absolutely fascinating. Because as God observes and takes pleasure in his worshipping creature. And he does take pleasure because it says his sacrifice was pleasing to God. God responds. Got to be careful here. God makes a decision. God says something in his heart, is what the text says. He doesn't appear to share it with Noah at this stage. It's just as if God is talking to himself. And God says these words. Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil. From childhood. Now, I need you to note this. Is this not the reason for the flood in the first place? I mean, pre flood, the Lord saw that every inclination of man's heart was only evil all the time. Post flood, nothing's changed. Nothing has changed. The flood hasn't changed. It hasn't realigned the sinful heart of humanity. It hasn't been rewired. It remains deeply set against God's purposes. The human heart is still messed up and all the terror of the waters has not changed that. And God knows that. So what now? More floods? First one didn't change anything. More floods? No. No. God, we read, says in his heart, never again. And I love those two words because taken together, and in this context they are two grace-filled words. Never again will I curse the ground because of man. Never again will I destroy all loving creatures. God had every right to. Every right to do it again. But he decides not to. It's almost, please hear me, it's almost as if there's been a change And a shift in the heart of God. An irreversible change. A never again change. A new resolution on God's part that even in spite of man's rebellion, his idolatry, his futile attempts to be autonomous, God is still committed to us. And so at the beginning of chapter 9, how does it start post-flood? God renews his blessing. This time on Noah and on his family. And he says what? He says exactly the same as he said that. And be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth. And man is then offered a new beginning. Because God has not abandoned his world. His creation is not left to muddle its way through. And as he continues to speak to Noah now in chapter 9. He also reminds him of the incredible truth. That in the image of God. Has God made man? Still made in the image of God. How we are human is different. But we're still made in the image of God. God's image is stamped all over us. And in each of us. As Jürgen Moltmann says. It was a self-humiliation on God's part when he lent his divine image to a clod of earth. But how much more God lowered himself after the flood in the renewal of his blessing. And that's grace. God is still for us. God is still committed to his creation. And then God actually shares this never again covenant promise with Noah. He actually shares it with him and with Noah's descendants, us. Now covenant is a word, it's a key theme of scripture that we're going to come across throughout this year and throughout this journey. And there are a number of covenants in the Bible and they are so important and they're so necessary if we're ever going to get our heads around this story. And with the different covenants that we come across, there is a sort of sense of progression. God keeps revealing more in the covenant. And someone has said, and I really like this, that the various covenants can be likened to resting places on the road. The road is history from Eden to paradise. And the covenants are places where we can stop and just see what God is doing. And in Genesis 9, we definitely stop. And we just see what God is doing. In a sense, that's where I want us to stop this morning. And notice, it is what God is doing. God is at work. God is taking the initiative. See, if you read right down through Genesis chapter 9, Noah says nothing. God does all the talking. It's God's initiative. You see, all hope for humanity lies with and depends on God And this is an unconditional covenant. There's no if you obey, if you sacrifice, if you pray. There's nothing. No conditions to be met on Noah's part. This is a covenant promise made by God in spite of the fact that the world has just been destroyed by sin and in full knowledge that sin still exists in the hearts of man. God asks nothing. And promises so much, never again, will I destroy all of life by the waters of a flood. Grace. Grace. None of us deserve it. And as God establishes this covenant, he offers a sign. It's a graphic, it's a multicolored, it's a breathtaking sign, it's a symbol of hope that brings a smile to our faces every time we see one. To rainbow. And it's a sign that represents grace over judgment. Yes, we deserve judgment because our hearts are evil, and God knows that. We deserve to be up to our necks in water. But we find grace. And you know, if there's ever a hint of hope or a rumor of redemption, it's here in Genesis 9. And it's there in the sky if we would just look from time to time. And notice in verses 15 and 16 of Genesis chapter 9, that it's not a sign primarily to us. And I've never really got this before, I'll be honest. I've never really got this before. I've always thought the rainbow's a sign to me, to us. It's not. Look what it says. When the rainbow appears, I will remember, says God. It's not you should remember. I will Remember, Now it's not that God might forget. This is not God's post-it note. Instead, God wants us to know that he will keep his promise. That every time we see a rainbow, we should note that once again, God is recommitting himself to us and to the promise that he made with Noah. The rainbow is a sign of grace and mercy of faithfulness. And because of it the story that we're reading continues. And because of it, the story is able to continue. And as I finish, as the curtain falls in this part of the story, there's a bit of a twist at the end. Because Noah doesn't exactly leave the Genesis stage in a blaze of glory. The righteous, blameless man who walked with God, the rescued, blessed, authentic worshipper, Gets it wrong. Badly wrong. He messes up. And one of our last images of Noah is not that great. It's of him lying naked in his tent, sleeping off a hangover. You know, people of faith still make mistakes. Despite what they've experienced, despite what they've seen, despite what they've said previously, Future failure for people of faith is always a possibility. Was Noah the last man of faith to mess up? Definitely not. Does that mean that failure is inevitable? No. Of course not. But it is a reminder to quote the New Testament that whoever thinks he is standing securely should watch in case he falls. Does that mean God then somehow wrote Noah off or out of the story? No. Because as we all know, and as I've already said, Noah appears in the Hebrews 11 Hall of Fame. He's remembered as a man of faith. But I'll guarantee you that the next time he saw a rainbow, he breathed a massive sigh of relief. And I realize that the story of the flood and the story of Noah are well known. But I hope this morning that you've seen certain aspects of it through fresh eyes and that you've heard a few hints of hope and rumours of redemption.